vision of the prodigal son. The story of the Good Samaritan is almost certainly the best known of Jesus' parables. It's a designation that's become proverbial among us. If you watch even the news and you see someone who helped a stranger, they call them a Good Samaritan. The name has been adopted by numerous charities, Samaritan's Purse, for example. There are Good Samaritan Hospitals all across the world. We even have Good Samaritan Laws that protect bystanders to render aid to those who are uh, injured or in danger. But I worry that that familiarity might have blunted some of the impact of this parable, particularly when we consider it in the context of Jesus' original audience. Just like some of the other parables we've considered so far, I think that there are key lessons attached to each of the main characters in this story. In this case, uh, three characters. Samaritan, the priest, and the Levite considered together as one. And the victim, the man who was beaten, robbed, and left there to die in the ditch. And yet, we think about those examples I've mentioned, the way we use the term Good Samaritan, and they underline the point that we really only consider one of those lessons, usually, when we look at this parable. And we'll begin there tonight, but we want to try to press further. But we probably need to remember the context here of this story. It's prompted by a lawyer's questioning of Jesus. And Luke tells us that he's not legitimately trying to learn. He's actually coming to test Jesus. And so he asks in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the tables on him. He should know. He's a lawyer. So he says, okay, how do you read the law? What do you say? And he answers by quoting the great commandment, the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he adds a, a postscript also drawn from the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a common topic in first century Judaism. And we might have guessed that even if we didn't know it otherwise, because we see that Jesus is questioned about this on another occasion. And Jesus actually answers in that very same way. So he says, you've answered correctly. But the lawyer wants to probe deeper. Oftentimes when we have discussions in theology or when we're debating particular issues, we'll find people saying, what, what do you mean by that? In our Bible class this morning, those of you who were in there, uh, Brother Taylor was asking a question. He was talking about something that he didn't understand, that he has some trouble wrapping his head around. And he asked some good questions, and I didn't know the exact answer to them, but I said the way he asked them, that sounded like his lawyerly brain had worked there, and that got a laugh from several people. He took it as a compliment. But I didn't mean it as either a criticism or a compliment. I meant it as an observation on the way that we approach topics. And I, I minored in government. I thought about going to law school. I even took the LSAT. So I, I could understand, at least to some extent, what we're talking about here. When we're talking about things uh, philosophically or when we're approaching difficult issues, we have to know what our terms mean because we could be using the same words and actually mean very different things by them. 
And so this man asked, who is my neighbor? Now, Luke says that he's attempting to justify himself, which presumably means that he's trying to prove that he's right in who he treats as a neighbor and who he doesn't. You see, the Jews, in particular, the Pharisees, would have had a very narrow view of who your neighbor was. Certainly, it would have been an Israelite, probably a devout or a righteous Israelite. Maybe even they'd only extend that to a fellow Pharisee. One thing you could say for certain is that that definition wouldn't have included anyone outside Israel. And of all those who weren't in the neighborhood, so to speak, Samaritans were perhaps the most despised of all. So Jesus responds to this this question by telling this story. And that's where we find the three lessons that we want to consider this evening. The first one comes from the Samaritan, and obviously this is a central lesson that we all know from this parable, and that is that we're called to show compassion to anyone who's in need. We have here an example to imitate. Jesus says in verse number 37, at the conclusion of this, we didn't read this verse earlier, but he says, you go and do likewise. Well, what is it? that we are to go and do likewise. What do we mean by that? Obviously, in our 21st century, it doesn't mean to go get a donkey and get you some oil and wine and go scouring the roads to see anybody there in the ditch. And if you find them, take them to the innkeeper and pay them in two pieces of silver. Uh, That's taking this too literally. So we need to contemporize this. But how do we make a modern-day application of this? And usually, you've probably heard this too, When I hear preachers illustrate this, most of the time we talk about a car stranded by the side of the road and do we stop to help that person or not. Now, I'll tell you honestly, I don't think in all my years of driving I've ever stopped to help someone by the side of the road. I've helped people change tires when I saw them in parking lots before. I've helped jump people off. Uh, Some other things like that. But for the most part, if I'm driving down the road and I see someone stopped by the side of the road there, well, uh, frankly, if there's not something to haul off or change my tire, I'd be pretty much useless because I don't know anything about cars. And not only that, I usually think we're traveling on busy roadways. Someone who's more prepared to help them might be able to stop, or we all have cell phones these days. Maybe that's just rationalizing, and I don't know. But... My larger point is this. We need to reflect on this idea more broadly than just that stock example of helping someone who's stranded there by the roadside. And what's crucial in making the Samaritan a powerful example is his attitude. In verse number 33, it says that when he saw him, that is the man there in the ditch, he had took pity on him, your translation might say. And that characteristic so defined the Samaritan that even the lawyer picked up on that. When he answers Jesus, who proved to be a neighbor to him, he says down in verse number 37, the one who showed him mercy. That compassion moved him to action. 
didn't just say, well, I'm sorry, sorry for you, buddy. I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then go on about his business. No, he did everything in his power to render aid to this man. He cleaned and he bound up his wounds. He put him on his own animal, giving him his comfortable seat. Then he went and make sure that he was cared for and he had plenty of food to eat and he paid for all the expenses for him. And when we think about that, and when we look at the world around us in light of this good counselor and with this attitude, we'll see that there are numerous people, countless people who are in need of our compassion and our mercy. They might have physical needs. They might also have emotional needs. They might have spiritual needs. Do we share the Samaritan Or do we allow the world around us to make a palace for the needs of others? That happens, doesn't it? We see stories on the news. We see violence in our movies and our television shows. We're constantly inundated with people having one need after another. And eventually we just sort of put up this uh, emotional force field. We become numb to all of this. And that could happen in a variety of circumstances. But what about this one? The beggar downtown, the poorly dressed person who comes into our services asking for help. And what if in any of these situations it's a scam, as it may very well be. Sometimes that crosses our minds. And of course, this is just sort of another lesson altogether. But there may be times when the most compassionate thing that we can do is to not give any help to such a person. In any case, when we frame the issue this way, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, do we have an ongoing commitment to help people in situations like this? Do we make a priority of those who need our mercy? Is it something that we're committed to in our lives? And we're treading here on ground we covered this morning, but you still don't want to take these two lessons together. We don't need to uh, belabor the point. And thankfully, at this church, we do have one very visible ministry that I know a lot of you were involved in where we minister to the physical needs of others, and that's a fantastic thing. But maybe you're not able to be involved in that for whatever reason. That's okay, too. The question we really need to be asking ourselves in light of the attitude the Samaritan exhibits is, where do we fit in here? Is this a priority for us? Are we concerned about the needs of others? Do we really have compassion upon them? Do we really take mercy upon them? Do we make it a priority in whatever way we can in our lives to help people in that situation? Now, Jesus could have made that point without even the need of mentioning the two characters in verses 31 and 32. There's no need to have the priest and the Levite passing by without stopping to make that point. But he does mention those two. And so that tells us that there's something important here. It shouldn't go unnoticed because these are precisely the people that his audience should have expected to stop and to render aid. And so from the priest and the Levite, we learn a second lesson. And that is that religion can get in the way of showing compassion to people. Let me 
explain what I mean by this. These aren't just any two men. Priests, Levites, they're part of the religious establishment. In particular, they have duties involved in the temple service. When they saw this man, they didn't just overlook him. They didn't not see him. They passed by on the other side. They saw him there lying in a heap, and they intentionally avoided him. They made the decision not to help him in any way. The road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. In the first century, it was commonly known as the way of blood because there were so many robbers there lying in wait and twisting and turning, and there are hillsides there, great big rocks, lots of places uh, to set an ambush. And so maybe they were afraid that the robbers were still somewhere close by and they might be putting themselves in danger if they went up there. Or maybe they thought it was a ruse, that he wasn't actually hurt and that he was just lying in wait to, to lure them in there so he could rob them. But I don't really think that that's what's going on, even if it is a possibility, I suppose, especially when you see that they passed by on the other side. They intentionally got as far away from this man as they could. And that points to the fact that most likely they were afraid of being defiled. Priests and a Levite, they weren't allowed to touch corpses. If they did, they would become ceremonially unclean. They would have to ritually purify themselves before they could be allowed to serve in the temple again. And so they went out of their way to avoid this man. Maybe he wasn't dead, but he was as good as dead, and they couldn't risk it by getting close enough to him to find out that he was dead. These are men who were set apart to perform acts of mercy, among other things that they had to do, of course. They should have been the very ones to offer that help, but they didn't. They were more concerned with fulfilling their duties in the temple and the fact that this would delay them in doing that for a week than they were with going out and actually practicing what God had called them to do, the reason they were set apart in the first place. How much more valuable than any religious ritual is a human life? I think about what Jesus says when some of the Pharisees are questioning him about healing on the Sabbath, and he challenges them, and he says, it's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 20. And the question I have for us is, how much does our doing church, for lack of a better term, sometimes get in the way of actually going out and doing the Lord's work? I was reminded of that this week, following a Facebook discussion group made up of several preachers and other members of the church. And the question was posed on there, is it the duty of the church to take care of orphans? That elicited 127 comments, believe it or not. And some of you who've been in the church a long time or grew up in the church may be surprised to find that that's even a, a live issue anymore. And others of you who maybe don't have that sort of long-standing association with church for Christ, you might be wondering why that's even a question at all. But a lot of us will know that this was a very controversial issue, among some other things, uh, about the middle of the last century. A lot of congregations uh, split over it. It's particularly contentious in, in this part of the world. And of course, nothing was solved from this discussion. A lot of the arguments 
ultimately devolve into just calling people names and insulting them in no one's mind, which. But it's my experience, and this is a good example just because I've seen it this week and also because it touches directly on what we're talking about tonight. But we could apply it to a variety of issues. My experience is that we spend so much of our time often debating what's right that we don't ever actually go out and do what it is that we're supposed to do. We spend all of our time thinking and talking and debating that we don't ever actually get busy to do what God's called us to do. There are some people who would actually object to the way that we do things here with the preaching and admission and all that. That would be something that some people would have a problem with. And if supporting institutions is something that uh, you object to and have bothered your conscience, that's fine. You don't have any issue with that. But the problem is so much of the time on whatever the issue, we don't actually go out and do our duty. Contending for the faith is something that Christians are called to do, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we are always contentious. The whole point is not to debate things endlessly and to end up in a perpetual argument. It was asked as a question on the thread I'm talking about. If Jesus came into the world to save sinners or to feed people who were hungry. You know what the answer to that is? Yes, he came to do both. And we should be concerned about doing both. We can't neglect either of those. We can't focus on social welfare to the extent that we neglect people's spiritual welfare. Uh, God doesn't want us to become just some do-gooder organization and neglect that saving of souls. That's of the utmost importance. But on the other hand, we need to get rid of this dualistic idea that God is concerned only with our souls and he doesn't care about our physical needs. God's concerned about all of us. We're his children, his creation. God cares for this world. And I think our sermon this morning made that point at length. We know that. God cares about the the poor, the widows, the orphans, others we could mention in this category. But let's be sure we don't focus so much about what we do inside these four walls that we forget to go out into the world and to minister to people who need our help. Let's make sure that we don't get so busy debating our religion that we don't actually go and practice it. When we do that, I'm not sure that the church is much, if any, better than a lot of other social organizations, clubs that really exist seemingly only to perpetuate their own existence. We're just trying to recruit new members and keep going, but we're not ever sure what we're actually going to about. And in any case, we're certainly no better than the priest and the Levite who left a fellow bleeding out there in a ditch because they were so concerned about defiling themselves. But we still have one more character to deal with. And you might not have thought about this man as a character really in this story before, but I believe that uh, this man helps to make the most important point of all in this parable. There were many stories in Jesus' day that consisted of Two clerics and one ordinary Jew. It's sort of like the rule of three in comedy where you have the group of three people and the third one is is the punchline. That's the point. 
Well, there's a whole body of Jewish lore that sort of had this anti-clerical bent where you would have a couple of religious figures and then you'd have the regular old ordinary everyday Jew who comes along and does what he's supposed to do. And Jesus' audience almost certainly thought that he was setting them up for that sort of thing. You know, a priest should have stopped to help, but he didn't. A Levite should have stopped to help, but he didn't. And here we have coming along this common Jew, a farmer or a shepherd or whatever, and he's going to be the one to fulfill the law. He's the teacher. Instead, Jesus shocks his audience when he makes the hero of this story a Samaritan. The very idea of a good Samaritan, a term that's proverbial at that time, That's an oxymoron for a first century Jew. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. The Samaritans were a a mongrel race, the offspring of the remnants of the northern kingdom and pagans that the Assyrians had settled there. They despised them because they were half-breeds. They despised them because of their perversions of the law of Moses, the fact that they rejected some of the scriptures of the Old Testament and they didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped in Mount Gerizim. See, this is the most dramatic point of the entire lesson. The the lesson that the man in the ditch would have learned based on the identity of his rescuer. And that is that even my enemy is my neighbor. Even my enemy is my neighbor. You see, we have to remember the question that frames the story back in verse 29 when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story in response. He unequivocally portrays the Samaritan as his neighbor. You'll note that because of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, the lawyer can't even get himself to say that it was the Samaritan. Jesus asked, which one proved to be a neighbor to this man? And he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. Now, this is an element that we usually ignore to this story, but as I said, I think it's in many ways the most important point of all. How do we keep the sting in the tail for a modern audience? Well, we would think about any one of the global enemies in our world, groups who have animosity toward one another. For contemporary Americans, maybe the way to create Attention at the desk is to make this man a Muslim. Let's make him a member of Al Qaeda or ISIS. Do we really consider this man to be our neighbor? Do we really consider that he's just as precious in the sight of God as we are? Is there a difference? in the way we as Christians respond to people like this as the way the man or woman out on the street responds to these sorts of people. Now, I'm thankfully not in a position to make government or policy, and so I'm not talking here about whether or not the United States should be at war or who they should be at war with or whether or not we should allow refugees from countries we're at war with to come over here. But here's the point. they have no way how do we as Christians treat them 
discernible difference that the world can see in the way we treat such people and the way the rest of the world treats them. Will we treat the refugee with compassion? The terrorist? Well, let's turn it around because many in our country are concerned about beast and our neo-Nazi type that is as despicable as their ideology is, will we treat the neo-Nazi with compassion? It's a hard lesson, but there's a sense in which this parable teaches who is my neighbor? My enemy is my most important because he's the one that is most difficult to be neighborly to. That's especially true if the world is going to see that there is a real difference in people who've been changed by Jesus and those who are just outside the church. You see, this parable isn't fundamentally about treating others with compassion, even though that's what we often oversimplify it. It's answering that question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, there are no limits, no ethnic limits, no geographic limits. Sometimes you'll hear it said that we're all part of a a universal brotherhood, the brotherhood of man, that God is our father, etc. Well, there's a nice sentiment behind that, but from a biblical standpoint, that's really not true. Scripture talks about the fact that there is a brotherhood, but in the New Testament, that's those who are in Christ. We have God as our Father. His one and only Son is Jesus, but through Him, those who are in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been adopted children. So there's no universal brotherhood. There's a real difference in those who are within the church, the brotherhood, and those who are without. But there is a universal neighborhood. Every human being created in God's image is my neighbor. That means I am to love each and every human being in this world as I love myself. Even if he's not my brother, he's my neighbor. Who needs your mercy and compassion this morning? Who do you need to recognize as your neighbor? Maybe it's someone you've been ignoring. Maybe it's even someone you've been despising. Our job isn't to go up to the fellow in the gutter and condemn him or ask him how he got mad. It's to help him on up. And that's because we would want that very same thing done for him. And that's because that man in the gutter is my neighbor. And that's because I'm to love my neighbor as myself. 